Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, unfortunately for all of you, it's just me today. Um, Sonia can't make it this week, so you're just going to have to listen to me talk. Um, I do, though, hope that you stick around and listen to me talk to myself in my kitchen, um, because today we're talking about disability, and this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Um, if you haven't been listening for very long and you don't know this about me, I am an autistic woman um, living with a chronic illness that can cause serious mobility issues, so I am currently living that disabled life. Um, but according to the World Bank, um, I am only one of approximately a billion people or 15% of the world's population who could be defined as disabled. Um, it is also the one of or possibly the only demographic of people that anyone can end up joining sort of without making a choice about it. Um, in fact, people are relatively likely to join this demographic um, either as a result of accident illness or injury, or just through simple aging. Um, as you age, you lose the ability to physically do certain things. You might lose the ability to mentally do certain things that uh, people typically are able to do when they are younger. Um, and so become, according to the World Bank, disabled. Um, also, as we go through this little discussion, I'm not going to go super far back in time because um, Sonia isn't with us and she's really the specialist on the pre-modern era. Um, but I did want to start off this conversation with a sort of general survey of what the field has looked like in the past. So more of a historiography rather than going super back in time. Um, so we're going to look at how have we as historians previously addressed disability and historical study? Then I'm going to run through a few things about the end of the 19th century and do a little primer on the disability rights movement. So this is going to be probably a pretty short episode, uh, mainly depending on how quickly I talk to myself. Um, but yeah, let's just jump right into it. So the field of disability history um, emerged rather recently. Um, and really more so than emerged, it was like carved out uh, by disability activists and historians. Um, most of the ways that people have thought about looking at society, the modes for analyzing society were really class or gender or race, things like that. Um, and disability was rarely considered a lens through which society um, and these other sort of modes mentioned could be analyzed. Um, but as the field has come into its own, historians have suggested that this resistance to looking at disability might really have been a result of inherent societal biases about how disability functions 
rather than any like real historical or methodological basis. Um, this is because since the 19th century at least, um, but some historians trace back to the Enlightenment in the early 18th, that we, those people in Western industrializing and industrialized societies, have viewed disability as a medical issue um, in which something has gone wrong in the body or in the mind that has rendered the individual disabled in some way. There is a clinical answer or treatment that, and the disability is something that is like inherent to that person. The disability is part of that person's body. However, as the field developed, more and more historians and theorists have moved away from this so-called medicalist model and toward a social model. Um, this is an idea that was first put forth by disability activists, much like this whole field in and of itself. Um, when they were trying to get accommodations in society, and then it was taken up as an analytical tool by historians and sociologists. One of the major texts that led to this model was Nora Groshi's Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language, Hereditary Deafness on Martha's Vineyard, which was published in 1985. And she looked at the history of Martha's Vineyard that has led to an unusually high rate of inherited deafness, um, but on the island, there was very little distinction between deaf and hearing folks. Essentially, everyone could sign. And in fact, it was a detriment to a person moving through the society to not be able to sign rather than to not be able to hear, especially because this was like a fishing environment, a fishing economy. So people were out on different boats. It was very loud and noisy, and you might need to communicate with somebody on a separate boat and being able to sign across the water or across your boat when it was really noisy was super helpful. So here we see um, how the way that a society is constructed can create a disability. Um, what can, and that like these societal constructions are what can prevent people from succeeding at certain tasks or being fully integrated into a society. And this can really apply to pretty much anything. So like while I was researching this up, I was reminded of like my time here in Montreal. Um, on this island, nearly everyone speaks both uh, French and English, and often it's a sort of weird combination of both. Um, and French is like the primary language that's spoken, but not having both is often like a, a, a detriment to an individual. And it certainly meant that there were many situations in which I was unable to communicate effectively with someone because my French, which again is the primary language spoken in this space, is really horrible. Um, I was also reminded of my time in Europe, where we were really only able to navigate Kiev because Sonia, who is not here today, her first language is Ukrainian. And our friend Taylor and I literally couldn't even read a map. That um, was just, we were completely unable to move through that space um, without Sonia's help. Or another example that's sort of more physical, um, I have really terrible migraines and sort of general light sensitivity that has in the past prevented me from spending a lot of time in certain spaces. Last year, I was super excited. I got these special pink lensed glasses that look really silly. I kind of look like, I don't know, I'm trying to wear sunglasses inside. Um, but they do keep the light that I'm sensitive to out of my eyes. And now I can participate in a lot of activities that I would have been barred from. So this is the social model that there isn't anything inherent to somebody's body that is preventing them from fully accessing society. It is the way that society 
has been constructed around them that's preventing them from being a full member. Um, and so that like right can apply to sort of anything that's preventing somebody. Uh, language accessibility, all of these different things. Um, and all of these things have ways that we can work around them and make sure that everybody is part of it. Um, but as we've like sort of integrated this social model of disability into our study of history, it has taken a lot longer for this model to be applied to mental health disabilities. Um, the My research has suggested that this is at least partially because of the medicalization of mental health and the pathologizing of certain conditions or ways of being. Um, it may also stem from the belief that there are not sources for historians to look at. There aren't sources that reflect the inner life of the mentally disabled or mentally ill. Um, because of the medicalization and separation of the developmentally dis delayed or mentally ill, um, it has been believed for a long time that there was no way to find sources that wouldn't be overshadowed by those who were caring for said people. Um, However, recent changes to the ideas of what can be viewed as a historical source has really changed that ideas. And also how we're reading sources from disabled individuals has changed. Um, and we're more able to understand how our society and individuals move through it through this lens of disability uh, with regards to mental illness or mental health disabilities. Uh, I do want to make a note here while we're talking about this, that I don't think that the practice of diagnosing people in the past with conditions we recognize now is particularly helpful in the grand scheme of history. Um, I know it's really common like, online and in certain like online disability communities, especially the autistic community, to point to historical figures and say, like, this person was autistic or this person was what X, Y, or had whatever um, situation going on and like, maybe they did. Uh, but also the experience of being neurodivergent in the past would have been so different from what it is now. While someone might have exhibited behaviors that we would now classify as autistic or a myriad of other pathologized conditions, um, they're really navigating a world that interpreted those behaviors really differently. Um, and this is sort of the point of the social model, right? Being neurodivergent in certain societies might not be anything that posed a major barrier for people, or it only posed a barrier for certain people, right? It might have been like a gendered issue or a racialized issue. Um, if we look at disability in the past through a lens of what did the people of the time view as something that would disable a person or prevent them from participating in society, like that is a more... I don't know, I think, like, I don't know, <laughs> like a valid way of examining the past. Like, right, Mozart and Isaac Newton were not excluded from their society. Now, I'm not an expert in this field or in the methodology of it, but it seems to me that the social method of examining disability points to how our society, medicalization, and capitalism disable people rather than how they are themselves disabled. Without fluorescent lights or customer service jobs, I am significantly less disabled than I would otherwise be, right? Um, 
And while we can point back to like Mozart and Isaac Newton said they exhibited all of these like autistic behaviors or neurodivergent behaviors, like they're not being disabled by the society that they're in. Um, so what have been the societal effects of the medicalization of disability? How did thinking of disability as something inherent to a person affect how it was treated by a larger society? And the long story short is eugenics. It resulted in eugenics. It was gross. Um, and right, we can talk about it for a short period of time. I don't really want to make this whole like 20 minutes or however long I'm going to be talking about eugenics. Um, and the history of eugenics is really complicated. Some historians have described, um, the eugenics of the first half of the 20th century as a system that revolved in a central way around race. Um, but it has more been more recently suggested that when we look at eugenics and eugenic policies of this period through the lens of disability studies, we can see how these policies were framed around the medicalization of disabilities and then sort of executed through a racist society. And thus the results were that these eugenicist policies had a greater effect on racialized groups than on other groups. Um, that is a complicated thing to break down that I just, it's a whole thing. Um, so there are many ways that eugenic theories were put into practice. Um, these examples include marriage laws that prevented certain people from marrying, immigration laws that prevented certain groups or those with certain conditions from entering countries, and of course, forced sterilization and institutionalization. If you want more information about um, how these programs, especially those around forced sterilization, uh, were particularly racialized, we have... Um, an episode where I talk about that specifically dealing with um, the indigenous peoples of North America, especially in Canada, um, in our pregnancy episode. So check that out for more information about sort of like eugenics. Um, but we can also move on to like, what did disabled people do to fight back against these laws and societal norms that remove them from full participation in society. Um, so if you really look up, right, just sort of like generally like the disability rights movement, um, it's going to be framed as something that really started in the 1960s and was inspired by a larger movement of civil rights happening across the United States. Um, but in reality, the movement really has its origins in the late 19th century and the development of industrialized capitalism, or like the sort of height of that growth. Um, as the world industrialized and the importance of an individual space in a community was shifted to their contribution to an economic system, disabled people were pushed further and further to the margins. Um, and then as we get into the 20th century, and we have other situations that lead to things like the introduction of the New Deal and social safety nets being introduced to these capitalist societies, the disabled were labeled as the quote-unquote deserving poor and removed further from expectations that they could be integrated into society. Um, when I was reading about this, the question that I was asking is who is the undeserving poor because that seems super messed up. Um, but yeah, um, and essentially what this led to was a system of separating the disabled from the rest of society and establishing an expectation that they would meet certain requirements to quote unquote deserve the assistance of the state. Um, initially in the early 20th century, some headway was made in gaining basic rights and accommodations for people 
through the work of specific organizations that were dedicated to very specific causes, namely organizations for the deaf and blind. And later in the 1930s, some headway was made by polio activists, but there wasn't like a sort of broad reaching movement yet. Um, in the 1940s, a lot of um, challenges to accessibility were essentially met because later short labor shortages created a need for including disabled people in the workforce. And um, at the end of the war, uh, momentum was really maintained as disabled veterans returned home and were looking for work as well. Um, luckily, this momentum was really able to like continue through the 50s and 60s as the civil rights movement sought for access to public spaces for people of all races and the disabled uh, also began to fight for accessibility to public spaces in sort of more of a broad sweeping way. Um, and then in terms of institutionalization and the help for the mentally ill throughout the early 20th century, the rise of investigative journalism also contributed to activism for the mentally ill and disabled as journalists exposed the truly horrifying conditions that were present in many institutions. This is obviously work that started um, in the progressive movement, but was still a like horrifying situation up through the 20th century. Um, and with investigative journalism and even like novelizations, people were able to fight for integration into like more general society uh, as opposed to being institutionalized. Um, we also have like, this is when the breakdown of like special schooling happened and disabled children were able to be integrated into regular schooling. Um, but it was really with the activism of the 70s and 80s and this sort of unified push with people of varying disabilities, along with the work of uh, veteran organizations that really led to like sweeping legislation like the ADA, which was passed in the United States in, the in 1990. Um, so that's the Americans with Disabilities Act that made sure that any public space that was offering um, services of some kind had to be accessible to people with disabilities. Um, workplaces had to be accessible to people with disabilities and housing has to be accessible to people with disabilities. So that's that. Um, but like now we're sort of up to the 1990s and we're still very much under the thumb of medicalization and capitalism. Disability rights organizations and activists are still fighting for equal access and anti-discrimination, especially in schools and workplaces. Um, one of the major calls that have gone out since the pandemic has started is to acknowledge that it was possible all along to accommodate um, disabled people working from home or on flexible hours especially in this age of the internet, but that companies just really were unwilling to do so until able-bodied people needed the accommodation as well. Um, and that just is bananas. <laughs> like you could have done this, you were just being a dick about it. Um, and I would also like to point out again that many of these organizations are pointing out the way that the built environment specifically denies access to people without so-called typical bodies, or that our focus on a person's value being determined by their economic contributions and their deserving of assistance um, 
puts up unnecessary barriers to living full and free lives, especially okay. in a mechanized world, which it is generally not necessary for people to be doing the amount of work that we are on a daily basis. Uh, we mentioned in a previous episode that in the early 20th century, economists believed that by this point in our history, we would be working a maximum of 10 to 15 hours a week just to supplement technology that would be doing a majority of our labor. Um, our shilling for capitalism has really created a world in which we work more than any other time in history, aside from maybe the working class of the early industrial period, and completely disvalue the lives of those who, for whatever reason, are not capable of keeping up with that. And of course, we're realizing now, uh, in the middle of the so-called labor shortage, that what's that it seems that like no one is capable of keeping up with this level of work, especially for the level of pay that workers receive. And I want to end this podcast. It's been quite short um, with a little note about the concept of the curb cut effect. And this is the idea that making something accessible for those with the highest needs in a society actually benefits everyone. So the most famous example of this and the one that lends its name to it is from when cities began introducing cutouts and curbs for wheelchair access so that wheelchair users could cross the street and get onto the sidewalk. And it ended up helping out people making large deliveries, those pushing strollers or pulling grocery carts or people moving house or hundreds of other things where somebody might be using some sort of wheeled device on a sidewalk. Um, and there are like plenty of other examples where we could make this case as well, right? Here in Montreal, I think that a grand total of four metro stops are fully accessible to wheelchair users and have elevators. Our escalators are also consistently down in metro stops. As someone with limited mobility, this affects me greatly, but it also affects parents or it affects people going shopping or bringing things to work. Um, and the common excuse is that it would be really expensive to update the metro system. And I personally think that's just garbage, um, because an updated metro system with accessible entries would not only ensure that disabled people would be able to access public transit, but that more people in general could use it regularly. Um, and then the city in generally would be less dependent on cars. Um, however, I also just think that honestly, people have a right to be able to access public transit and participate in society. So maybe we should just make things accessible to those with the highest needs regardless of whether or not um, that particular thing is going to be super useful for every single person uh, entering a space. Um, so yeah, that is my little mini pod about the disability history, etc. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, next week, we will be talking about... Uh, well, no, I'm not sure. I think my list is out of order, but we'll be back next week. And thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. And as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!